I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, it's Lainey. Hey, it's Joanna. Welcome to Show Your Work. It is another special episode that we are super excited about. Yes, we have a special guest, a very special guest at a very special time. Yeah, absolutely. Our special guest is Michael Grassi, who is a writer and executive producer on Riverdale, and I'm also proud to say a dear friend of mine. We met years ago on a little Canadian show called Degrassi. Mm-hmm. You've just name-checked Riverdale and Degrassi, and you haven't even like mentioned the big news. No, I was going to leave that for you. I'm generous. So... Michael is now, fresh news, the executive producer of Katie Keene. Katie Keene, another spinoff of the Riverdale franchise, like Sabrina, which is coming to the CW this fall. So just to be clear, everybody, we have a proper showrunner today as our guest. And he is talking to us all about writing and being a Canadian in the U.S. and the thirst traps of writing for very, very hot teens. And he's talking about fan service, writer life. And he had one kind of rule for getting through long 16-hour production days that Mm -hmm. you really, really loved. I'm going to make that into a t-shirt. But also, he like fed into what you know to be, and I want everybody else to, you know, join me on this, is he like allowed me to develop and increase and feed my fetish for the writer's room. And there's a good reason for that. It's pretty awesome. Uh, My favorite thing was that there are lessons and experiences he and I had together that are still really resonant. So it's not only gratifying to think we both remember the same things, but to remind you all that the people that you came up in the trenches with, some very nice trenches, are often the ones who really understand the way that you think and the way that frame your outlook on work. And because I'm a narcissist and I want to join this Degrassi party, um, I was a guest star in one of the movies. I'm not going to say star. I was a guest cameo. (laughs) Well, that's true. You Uh, wrote the movie. uh, Michael and I and two other writers, uh, Kate Melville and Emily Andrus, uh, now the showrunner of Winona Earp, if we're name dropping, yep. uh, wrote four episodes that were also billed as a TV movie called Degrassi Takes Manhattan. Uh, and you make an appearance in it yes, as yourself. I have a line or two. We should probably find that clip <laughs> and link it in the show notes. Um, anyway, it was such a treat to have Michael with us. Uh, all season, we've been profiling the work of writers of in different industries. And to be able to talk to a showrunner, somebody who has been in a writer's room, Um, and who's gone from being a member of the writer's room to leading a writer's room, the progression of his career, showing his work. It's really such an honor for us to be able to showcase that. So listen to your friend and mine, Michael Grassi, and we'll meet you on the other side. 
Hi, Michael. Hi. This is so fun. I'm just going to institute this as the way that I hang out with my friends. Just like come on the podcast. I'm so excited to be here. And I don't know if you, you, you guys know this, but I'm just going to say it anyway. You guys have so many fans. Um, and, and when I mentioned to a friend that I was doing this, she literally said, oh my God, for 30 seconds straight and started <laughs> referencing all of your episodes. So you guys have a lot of fans, just so you know. I'm so excited to be here and honored. Is this your first ever podcast? This is my second ever podcast. I did one for Riverdale season one, which was really fun. And uh, so I feel really warmed up. It's been three years. So we're just jumping back in. And of course, you live with a podcaster who has a super, super popular podcast. Yes, Matt. I'm in, actually in his office right now. So if I, I, we're, we're, we're on Skype. So you, you can see over my shoulder his Jennifer Aniston calendar, I think, right around here. Um, but he hasn't asked me to be a guest yet. Maybe one day. I'm waiting. I mean, that's the real pinnacle, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping. It's it's called homophilia. I'm going to plug it. And it's it's really, really good. They interview LGBT uh, uh, celebs. And, and I haven't reached celeb status yet. But maybe that's why I haven't, I haven't gotten my invite. Well, look at that for an intro. Uh, so I think you're about to reach full-on celeb status. Uh, so we mentioned in the intro, but you have been the co-EP for Riverdale for several seasons, and you are just about to start production as we speak on Katie Keene for the CW. True? False? That, true. All true. No, it's been really, it's been really, really fun. Um, it's been, it's funny when you join a show in season one, you really don't know what it's going to be or what the ride's going to be. And, um, and it's been really, really exciting to to tell the stories and to see the kids sort of blow up and become huge stars. And um, and we're headed into season four with a lot of the same writers that we started with in season one, a really strong team, maybe one of the best rooms I've ever worked with, so such strong writers. And um, and in this last year, season three, Roberto and I started developing uh, Katie together and we made a pilot and that just got picked up this past week. Um, and it's very, very exciting. So now that we have you here, I mean, there's so much to talk about because we're so lucky. We scheduled this a few weeks ago, and then it just happens that we talk to you when the news breaks. So we, we feel like we have an exclusive here. Um, but also we are in the room, so to speak, with somebody who is on the ground in LA over the last few months while this whole writer's agent break kind of um, battle is going on. So what's it been like on the ground in LA, like in the hub of where the majority of art writers live and work um, as a writer yourself? How has, how has the atmosphere been? Um, well, it's kind of been a complicated time and a very emotional time. I think, I think a lot of us, um, have strong relationships with our agents. I think a lot of us uh, feel close to our agents and our agents really helped us in our careers. And then there's also a really important fight that has to be done that has, that has to happen. And, 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 and we're standing with, with the writers and, and we're, it's, and, and it, it's complicated and it's uh, emotional. And it's also um, a time when uh, staffing is happening. So we want to make sure that we're seeing everybody who's out there um, when we're trying to staff a room up and, um, 
and usually uh, we're liaising with agents to make that happen. Um, but it's been amazing to see uh, the, a community of writers sort of rally and support each other. And we've met with many writers who were recommended online or on Twitter or, or people who we met through um, our, our executives at Berlanti did some deep digging. And then we sort of got ahead of it knowing that this was coming. Um, but it's been nice to see writers sort of rally and have each other's backs and, and support each other through this agentless time, which is new uncharted uh, territory. And, and I guess, I guess my personal hope is that everyone sort of gets back to the table soon and, and figures something out so that we can all uh, uh, either get back with the agents that we love or find new ones, but we can sort of proceed um, as and business as usual. So everyone could get back to work is sort of how I'm feeling. Well, what have you guys been hearing? What's, what's your take on it? I mean, so what we know is obviously, I think it's a really good point that you point out, like the unions and the union sort of positions are what are in opposition, but individual writers and reps really, of course, care for each other and have like helped each other's careers over this time. Um, The interesting thing, it's been amazing to watch the staffing on Twitter, as you say, for those who don't follow a bunch of writers. Uh, A lot of writers are putting up notices saying, I need, you know, a writer at such and such a level for this genre of show and people respond or people saying, hi, I'm a co-producer level and I just got off this show. Call me for interviews. And I love hearing from you that it's actually happening. Uh, And I guess the other thing that we're hearing is that the press is maybe not super evenly weighted because uh, you know, for various reasons. Um, so, but it's interesting to, to hear you say that you've really found that that sort of grassroots thing is working. Well, I want to jump on that too. Like part of my job is to be, I think like analyze the media. And so the coverage of this, which I'm interested in because I think you guys have maybe an insider perspective on what's going on and clearly like are on side with writers, the right side, But the layman out there, people who are just enjoying TV shows and not really understanding what the situation is, they're going to consume the news from media outlets. And it's been interesting to see which outlets are presenting the situation fairly accurately and which you, if you have an understanding and have connections in the world, you can see right away which media outlets are a little bit mouthpiecing on behalf of the agents. Um... But I don't know if you don't have that sensibility, you don't know writers, you don't communicate with them. If you're reading those outlets, if you're going to, your takeaway is going to be, oh, these guys are embedded with the agents, Um, their their view is slanted. And so I'm curious, I I worry about what that does to, you know, somebody who's not versed in the world. Right. Like, because it, you assume the outlet that you trust is fairly unbiased or whatever. Sure. And whether or not out there people are like, fuck these writers, what are they complaining about? It's peak TV. There's TV shows everywhere. Everybody should have a job. Like, you know, every, every time I turn on the Netflix, every time I like think about Amazon prime, there's something new coming on. I don't understand what's happening. Yeah. It's, 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 you're, you're absolutely right. I think that reading the news can sometimes create fear and confusion and as wait this isn't really what's happening and there's been a lot of a lot of that and and there's been a lot of me having to personally 
talk to as many people as mm. possible. I feel like that's, yeah. and, and not just people who um, I'm working with. Like, it's one thing to sort of talk to my agents or my lawyer, but it's another thing to talk to other writers. It's one thing to pick up the phone and talk to lawyers at the WGA. It's one thing to talk to representatives at the WGA. I, I, honestly, talking to other writers and 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 everybody, all of the people I just mentioned, um, has helped me make decisions for myself moving forward and not just reading one outlet. Not, not that anybody's doing that, but, but sometimes you're, you do, you do open for, for instance, deadline. And you're like, Oh my God, is this really what's going on? Um, as a lot of us do, we, we, we often open deadline once, once, twice a day and read, read what's going on. And, and that's, I don't think that that is always helpful. You know, what is helpful though, I think for fans, like who don't have the insider perspective is that Business is, as you're talking about, going on as usual. Like, as opposed to, when was the strike? 2008? Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to in 2008 when there was an actual stoppage and things weren't moving forward. As we just heard from you, you're trying to staff a room. You're moving ahead. Congratulations, the pilot. And then, you know, the series. Mm -hmm. Things, work is continuing. Um, And so I don't know necessarily that, I mean, fans only get upset when it actually affects their, like their consume, like their ability to consume the, the, the art, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. They don't necessarily won't feel this because what it is about ultimately is who's making money off those deals that are made and who's packaging or otherwise benefiting in ways that aren't necessarily what the their clients, yeah. who, you know, who make them their commissions signed on for. And for them, it's like, as long as I get to watch TV, as long as I get to see when is Katie Keene coming on. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. Right? I, th- I think that's exactly right. I think I think when this was happening, some of the fear that was being put out there was if, if you guys go on this strike, if you guys sort of do the, the sign this letter to, to let your agents go if they don't sign, I think a lot of the fear that was going around was, well, you guys won't get through staffing season. And I think people have successfully or are getting through staffing season. I think that the, the next thing that's being said is, well, you won't get through development season. And, and I, I do see that there will be challenges ahead, but it'll be interesting to see how far people will continue to get in this in this agentless world. And, and like I said, my hope is that it, people go to the table and, and, and start discussing again and do resolve this. Um, like I said, I... I I like my agents. I want to keep working with them. Um, hopefully, hopefully in time. So, okay. So let's talk a little bit then about staffing. So you are staffing up a room. You said, oh, Riverdale is one of the best rooms I've been in. You and I were in a wonderful room together for some many years. So talk a little bit for people who don't know, what is it that you're looking for? How do you put together a room? That's such a good question. Um, I think the top goal is a room full of diverse, passionate voices is the biggest thing. Um, um, the, the sort of amazing thing about a room is you get to have this ongoing dinner conversation that goes on for a very, very long time, like nine to 10 months or, or more, um, where these stories sort of accumulate and you get to hear from um, 10, sometimes, sometimes 10 people who have different perspectives in life and, and, and come from different places. And I think that's what's amazing. And, and, and whenever um, I sort of think about what 
are, am I looking for a writer? What is Roberto looking for? And we're looking for people who are really passionate and we're looking for people who are just there to, to, to make these stories with us and just contribute in every single way, whether that's a huge season long arc idea, whether that's uh, uh, a great pitch for a conflict, a great, uh, a great scene, a great way into a scene, a great line of dialogue and image. Uh, we're sort of um, looking for it all and we need it all. Um, and, and yeah, it's, 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 a writer's room is a very, uh, special thing. And, and like I said, I, I love, I love writers. So even this part of the year, when I get to meet other writers, cause when, when you're in it, you're in it and you're kind of in a bubble and you're making this, you're making a show, but when, when that sort of slows down and you get to step out and, and sort of meet with writers, um, that's a, a nice time as well. I, I, I love meeting with writers. What's it, what does it feel like? Is it? Um, is it like dating? Is it like, I think, I think maybe something like that. I I think a big part of it too, is you're spending so much time with these people. So, uh, I think a a big part of the meeting is, is this someone that, um, you want to spend a full year with making these stories with. And, and I think that is, that is one part of it. And, and, and are they passionate? Are they excited? Um, um, to tell these stories, are they passionate about the characters? Um, and and a, a big part of it as well, as as you can imagine, is is their material and their writing. And and I love reading people, and I love I love I love uh, seeing the different voices. And it's funny how you, Linda, sort of said this to us, do I know a while back, or we sort of figured that she did this, but you sort of cast a room, right? Like there's sort of like different people fill different sort of character voices and character places like you sort of understand, okay, well, this person, not that anybody's pigeonholed, but it's like, well, this person's going to come in and it's sort of going to represent maybe this type of character. And, and, and obviously that ends up changing and evolving. And then everyone on, on Riverdale, I would say can write any character, but, but um, it is, it, you do sort of cast a room to make sure that you have different voices um, contributing different in different ways. And, and yeah, I do hear what you're saying. It is a little bit like, like maybe it's like dating. Maybe it's like seeing like, do I want to spend a lot of time with this person is part of it for sure. Well, Duanna knows I have a little bit of a, like a fetish for writer's rooms when, (laughs) whenever she's in a room, um, and it's a new room, I always like love the stories. I want her to break down for me what it feels like. Cause I've never been in a writer's room. I haven't yet. Um, so I'm, and I, I think that it's the same for the people listening. So I just want to explore this a little bit. This is when you talk about being together for nine and 10 months, nine or 10 months with these people, it means being together vulnerable, like in, in a place of vulnerability, right? You are talking about the characters, talking about the story, but in able, in order to get there, you're sharing some, a lot of yourself. Yes. I think so. I think I think every room is different and everyone's different in a room. I think some people share more personal experiences, some people less. And I think both versions of that is okay. But to that point, I think a room, all, all the best rooms that I've been in have been really rooms where you feel really safe. Uh, rooms where you can pitch the bad idea and the bad idea often leads to something great. And, and, it, and you sort of feel like, you can be yourself and say the thing that you need to say whenever you need to say it. I think those are the best rooms that I've, that I've been in where it sort of feels collaborative and you can, and you can be vulnerable and you can open up um, 
about life experiences because so many, especially on character shows like Riverdale and I think like Katie Keene, uh, the stories will be really personal. So I think I think a room where people feel safe to open up is, is really, really important for sure. Well, I think it's really indicative of your personality that you describe it as a dinner party conversation. Like, I think that says more about you than because that's the kind of person that you are, that you want to always have super interesting, intriguing conversations. But to break it down for people who don't, who aren't in a room, like, let's just explain a little bit about why personal experiences do come up. We've talked about this a little bit on the podcast in the context of me too. And in the context of like, you know, appropriate workplaces. And it's like, if our workplaces are desperately inappropriate, sometimes by nature, because they have to be. Um, so can you talk a little bit about why it's important to tell personal stories or where they get from being a personal story about my date that I went on last night that becomes about the work? Yeah. Um, there are so many examples of that. And I think one of them is even I can talk about Katie Keene a little bit. When Roberto and I were, were developing Katie Keene, I think we really cracked it open when we realized it was a show about being in your 20s and being an artist. And um, and, and we also thought of it as, um, the in River, Riverdale is a coming-of-age show, and we sort of thought of Katie as a second coming-of-age show, like stories about when you're in your 20s, when you're a little bit older, you know yourself a little bit more. And we're like, okay, what are those stories? And I think Roberto and I had both sort of been had experiences with, for example, like people who were supposed to be your mentors and turned out not to be. And that's sort of one of the stories in the Katie Keene pilot um, with Katie and her boss. So that, that, that's, that's one example of something personal that ends up landing on screen. But I also, Roberto was a playwright in New York city in his twenties. And that, that's sort of what the story of Katie Keene is. It's it, they, live, they live in Washington Heights and, and, and they, they, they share uh, uh, an apartment and Josie literally sleeps in the living room on the pullout where everyone has to walk through. And we've all sort of had that experience of you, you're broke. You have not broken through it. You've not gotten your foot in the door in your career yet. Um, you're single and it's sort of the best time of your life. It's sort of that romantic time of your life. And it's such a personal story for, I feel like I've lived that life. I feel like a lot of us have lived that life. And that's sort of an example of something that we've all been through and we can share those specific stories in the room. And I think in many ways, they're universal. Well, we talk a lot about specificity is universal. Um, so to take that one step further, not that I'm pitching you what is already in the pilot, but for example, yeah, if you say, oh, I was sleeping on the couch in the apartment with my friends and I don't know, they had stolen the sheet that I was using as a blanket because they were having sex. And so then I was like, do I take it down and then they have no door or do I, you know, sleep here without a blanket? Like the more specific, the more everybody goes, oh yeah, I've had that weird experience, which is how you wind up telling these stories about your, about your life. For sure. And I love that. It's like, it's funny. It's, um, going back to that dinner conversation, going back to the specificity of pitches, um, something that Roberto always says is something that I've started saying as well, the stories really accumulate in the room. Sometimes you go in day one and you're like, okay, this is the story. Or sometimes you go in and you're like breaking and you're on like scenes, you're like breaking. Okay. We're on scene seven. You're like, oh no, this is what the story is. And then once you know what it is, people sort of, sort of, sort of start pitching all these details. And like you just mentioned, Duane, like that can be a pitch on a scene when someone wakes up, like what, are all those delicious details? What's all that specificity? How do we make this richer? How do we make this deeper? You've mentioned Roberto a few times, but I don't think we gave like his full name and who he is. 
Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa is uh, uh, a very talented writer uh, who I met on my first season of Supergirl. And um, we, our offices actually shared a wall. And um, every time Roberto had a call while he was developing Riverdale, that was the year he was developing Riverdale um, into a pilot. I sort of uh, listened in on every single call he had. So I felt like I was really engaged in all of the uh, Riverdale pilot process. And I was so interested. Um, and then one day I asked him if I could read the pilot. And I remember reading it and I was like, I am obsessed with this show. I'm obsessed with these characters. I felt like it was something that had a pulse and it was so deep. And I'm like, I, and I, I really couldn't believe what I was reading. It felt like a... Uh, uh, um, it felt like something really special. So uh, when I had the opportunity to work with um, him on the show, I sort of jumped over from uh, Supergirl to Riverdale, which was easy enough because they're uh, both in the Berlanti camp. So that, that was good. And uh, yeah, sort of, we've been working together ever, ever since, which is, it's, it's been great. And uh, Roberto's um, tremendously talented Easter. His first room out in LA was on, on big love. Um, so he tells lots of great stories. Excuse about me. Being on, I didn't know big that. Love. You know, that's yeah. one of my top, two favorite shows of all time yeah I, mine too i'm obsessed with big love and he was on it for uh three years i think yeah big love and, and was he, way ahead of its time um yeah agree 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 if it was on now it would be like it would be the americans oh i had no idea yeah. okay anyway um i think we could talk for hours about rooms and staffing and whatnot but i just want to go towards something that you said about having a diverse room and that means lots of things, uh, and we can get into all those things. But um, I can see how people might think if you talk about, oh, Katie Keene is opens in Washington Heights and somebody who's an artist and so forth. And yes, I'm thinking of the, the opening song from In the Heights, obviously. <laughs> but uh, I can see how people might think, oh, so you want all people who have lived in Washington Heights or Brooklyn or worked in publishing or whatever. And that's not necessarily the case, right? No, I think I don't think that's the case at all. I think I think if someone's done that, great. But it's also, I think the idea of diversity is something that we love about Katie Keene as a show is that there's diversity in our cast and in the casting, but there's also a diversity of characters. Um, these are four people in their twenties. Like the, the, our four uh, 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 leads on the show are sort of four people who are pursuing very different passions, and sort of everybody on the show. Even the guys, they all have a dream and they're all pursuing something very different. Um, so it's nice you get to go to these sort of these different quadrants of like fashion, drag, um, Broadway, uh, music, all of these worlds that Roberto and I are both obsessed with and, and, and they have these strong engines. So when we're looking for diversity in a room, it's not just that one thing. It's people who are passionate about all of these worlds and want to tell stories with, in, within these, these quadrants, I call them. But then... Um, the other nice thing is really it, it is a family show. It's the, the heart of the show is when all of these friends come back all together in the apartment and, and pregame before they go out or, or talk about their wins or their, or their losses. And, and, um, and that is the heart of the show when the friends are all together in the apartment. So we want to hear from people who have had that experience of, as well. It's, it's um, very much it's another touchstone for the show is, is rent, um, which is about a community, right? A community of artists, which is something that we're, we're obsessed with. I know that doing. <laughs> I I um I want to like keep going on this diversity thing because of course I think the audience is becoming much more and more tuned to the kinds of stories that they're getting and who gets to tell these stories 
Whereas, of course, in the past, we all know who was telling the stories in Hollywood, who was putting them on TV. Um, the immediate example I want to give is um, Game of Thrones, which right now we are kind of in the tornado, the vortex of it's just about to end. Perhaps by the time this airs, it will have ended. And a lot of people have pointed out that the reason why through the seasons, the women of the show have been done dirty is because there weren't often any women in those rooms. In fact, some seasons, I think of Game of Thrones, there was only one woman in the room. And then in subsequent seasons, after the backlash and after the criticism, the showrunners, the writers have tried to correct. Although uh, there <laughs> certainly are rarely, if ever, female directors on that show. Yeah. Uh, and it's maybe more of a director-influenced show than some. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, it's a smaller room if there is a room. So yeah, yeah I, I would concur that that's a persistent issue. I would say that like, my favorite all-time all episode of Game of Thrones was actually directed by a woman. And it did not, though that episode did not do its women dirty, like, you know, to give you. However, my point is in a room, do you ever, like, you're, you know, the way I fetishize and, and, and envision it is you guys are all in a bubble. You're coming up with the story. It's great that, like, everybody gets to chime in. But have you ever, outside of the bubble later after the show has aired, been like, we did miss that? I think that's uh, you. You raise such a good point, and I and I think I would say absolutely. Um, I think we're always learning, and we're always listening to our audience, and we're, we're always um, um, evolving. And I think this, the the second that we would stop learning, I think we'd be in trouble. Um, I think I think that I think that's so important. Um, and 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 I, I wouldn't say that 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 fans. And audience feedback sort of drives our storytelling, but I would say that we are always listening, and we really value fans, and we really value what's happening in, in the world. And and I think that's that always comes into our conversations in the room in terms of how we shape stories, and in terms of how we um, we love all our characters, and what we put them through is 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 has to be about character and has to ha it has to respect our characters as well. That's always really, really important to us. So it's always a fine line of like what's dramatic, what's interesting, but al what also respects these people that are our fans have, have come to love. Well, uh, you know, you talked about lessons learned from earlier shows or earlier seasons. And I always, I think I've talked to you about a situation where years ago, on Degrassi, there was a junior position that was open and there was somebody who was sort of a de facto understood person to, to get this job. They were qualified, they were personable, everybody liked them. And when our showrunner, Brendan, who we've referenced often, uh, met that person and agreed that they were qualified and personable and whatever, uh, he decided he wasn't going to hire that person. And the rationale was, well, we have too many of that person already. Uh, mm -hmm. They had a certain profile, they were of a certain type and lived in the same neighborhood as and had maybe the same interests as and the same opinions as people who were already in the room. And so his point and his mm -hmm. goal was let's diversify so that we have different perspectives on those characters so that we don't become too much of a bubble. Uh, so yep. when you talk about lessons to carry forward, that's one I always try to remember is that it is easy when you're talking about staffing to be like, this person is great. Everybody likes them. They're qualified, whatever. But do they also bring, as you point out, 
something that's totally new or something we don't have. Yeah. And the bubble thing is really interesting. And I'm glad you brought it up. Like when I think back to important moments in the room, moments that sort of shifted our season in important ways or our characters in important ways, I, I think it's moments when writers pitch something that sort of stepped outside the bubble and we're like, but what about this? Um, and, 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 um, it's, 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 and that sort of speaks to us being able to step out and it's important too. It's a, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. It's really interesting. So, you know, we talked about how you and Duanna met, you guys were in a room together on Degrassi. Obviously both of your careers have evolved. So can you talk about the transition in being somebody who is in a room and then becoming somebody who leads a room? You're show running now. Katie Keene is your latest show running feather, I guess. Is that the expression? Uh, sure. We can take that. Yeah. Um, I- so I, I always have, I, as a person who isn't in the writing community for like scripted, I always have an idea that showrunners are, you know, the models in the media that we have of showrunners are Ryan Murphy and Shauna Rhimes, where, you know, they are their own juggernauts and they run their rooms. But there are all kinds of different showrunners, yeah? Like you create your story, you pitch your story, you run the show. And then there are showrunners who are very experienced and they get hired by the network or the production company to run a show, I don't know, alongside somebody. So can you talk about your experience and like first evolving as someone who writes in a room to leading a room and then, you know, showrunner culture to in general? For sure. Um, like what we were saying earlier, I feel like we're really f- formed by some of our, our early room experiences. And I felt like Duane and I were very lucky to have very positive early room experiences. Um, uh, Brendan York was our showrunner uh, on on Degrassi, and he had such a strong. Um, um, he just was a, a strong leader, and 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 really listened to every every pitch, and 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 when it came time to sort of take the reins, he took the reins, and 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 it was felt like a very collaborative experience. And I think every showrunner that you work with, you sort of learn from. Um, you learn what you want to do. You learn what you don't want to do. Um, and I feel like I've been fortunate to work with, with, with many great showrunners, um, Emily Andrus on, 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 on Lost Girl, um, in terms of the transition, um, I sort of had a strange situation. I had finished one season on Lost Girl, um, which was so much fun with Emily. And then I went, uh, to LA to do the Shit's Creek season one room, which was also really fun. That was led by Dan and Eugene. Um, and then sort of towards the end of, uh, the Shit's Creek season one room, I got a call from Lost Girl saying we're, we're picked up for a fifth and final season. Do you want to come back? And I was like, I don't think so. I think I live in LA now. And, and Vanessa Piazza at the time said, well, do you want to come back and run it? And I didn't even hear that because I didn't, I, I just didn't process it. And I, I remember it was like maybe six hours later, I was going to bed and I was literally pulling up the covers and I was like, wait, Vanessa said, do you want to run it? And, and I sort of thought about that for a second. I was like, maybe that's something I need to, I need to try. So I felt like I got an opportunity to run um, a room early on and, and it was a terrifying thing, um, but I'm glad I did it. Um, I learned so much that season. Um, uh, it was, it was, I felt like I was sort of at, at 
showrunner school and and I had an amazing room of writers that year as well. Um, so I had sort of a strange transition, um, but I loved leading a room and, and, and then I moved out to LA and, and now sort of on Riverdale, um, um, it's sort of a really collaborative process again. Cause like I said, those writers are amazing. Um, and uh, so I've gotten to do it again and, and it's going to be fun to do it with Katie Keen as well. So I, I, and I think what it comes down to is you want to be passionate about the stories you're telling. And I think the second that you're not is when you might be in a little bit of trouble. And I've been fortunate. I feel with lost girl with uh, Riverdale and Katie Keen, I feel like I'm, these are stories I kind of need to tell. Um, and you get so caught up in your career sometimes with, with what's next. But I think it's so important to sort of lower the noise and take a step back. And you're like, what stories do I want to tell? What do I want to be doing? Um, and I feel very fortunate that I feel like I'm, I'm telling exactly what I want to be telling right now, which is, which is great. It's so interesting uh, that you talk about that because you talked about showrunners who create shows or showrunners who are hired to shepherd other shows and, uh, actually there's a, a woman, uh, I got to hear Ayanna Floyd Davis speak a couple of weeks ago. She's the showrunner of the second season of the shy. And she used a word that I love that you're going to love. She called it matriculation. She talked about the importance of writers matriculating up through the ranks. And that's often a third path, right? That you kind of grow up on a given show. And then somebody says, okay, you know, this show very well, cause you've been here so long now you take it. And certainly that's something that happens in Shondaland. I think in, Ber- do we say Berlanti land? What do we say? Yeah, I think Berlanti land's good. Yeah. <laughs> the Berlanti um, camp. That's what I say. Berlanti camp. Okay. Uh, but that's a very uh, popular other sort of path, right? Is to kind of grow up under somebody mm-hmm. and then they say, okay, here are your brains. And maybe. absolutely. Uh, so can you describe your style personally a little bit? Are you super oh. regimented? Do you like uh, timed bathroom breaks or are you a little looser? What's your story? I, and before we, I want to talk about the matriculation a little bit. Is that okay? Can we stay yeah, of course. talk about that? I'm so um, fascinated by that. And I think it's so important. And I, I learned so much from, like I said, all the past owners I've worked with and, and from Roberto on a, on a daily basis. And I continue to learn. And um I've seen writers sort of who started off as writer's assistants or um, Roberto's assistants or even our script coordinators from season one of Riverdale who are now uh, full on writers in the room who are breaking amazing stories and and writing amazing scripts and shouldering story in the room. So it's been amazing to see people grow into these roles and people who start off as assistants sort of sort of become blossom into amazing writers in the room um, and become invaluable truly. Um, and, and uh, uh, even mid-level sort of, uh, sort of growing up into that, into that position. So it is something that I think is so important. And, and the idea of mentoring uh, young writers and, and making sure that they have a voice and making sure that they get to do lots of writing, uh, I think is such an important part of the process. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So on our show, while as we've talked about showrunners and as we've like moved through um, how Me Too affected Hollywood and how it affected writers' rooms and cultures behind shows and the Time's Up movement, we also have discussed leadership and management and who was the showrunner who used to be a hospital administrator? Oh, uh, Glenn. Glenn Mazzara. Right. And so on one episode, we talked about how he said um, very few showrunners who are essentially managers in this business have management experience. And for him, because he was a hospital administrator, he was able to apply some of that skill set to an artistic environment. Um, so I wanted to ask your, in your, in your transition from being in the room to leading a room, how you're assessing your own management skills and how you're finding being a manager and whether or not those two roles, artist versus manager are ever in conflict and how you, how you have been able to marry those two sides of yourself. I love this question. Um, I think that management is 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 a really important part of the room um and i think the most important part of 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 it is communication and something that i think i want everyone to know at all times in any room i work in is that the lines of communication are always open um we always want to hear from writers if they want to be doing more of something or 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 less of something but if a writer is passionate about something specific we or i want to hear what that is and I will do my best to make sure that that writer is doing more of that. Um, in terms of my style, I think I think I'm I'm like I said I'm always learning minute to minute. It's funny making um, developing Katie Keene with Roberto and then and then and then producing the pilot and then being on set and then be going through the post process on it. I feel like I learned something new every five minutes, I felt like truly I was at pilot camp and I, I had the time of my life. And, and, uh, and I think I'll continue to learn as I enter the room for Katie. Um, I think that's so important. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm not one of those uh, showrunners who's stepping into this saying, I know everything, but I'm one of those people who I, I think I'm ready to uh, take on the challenge and, and hear from everybody in the room and, and make it a collaborative, creative process. And, 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 uh, sort of uh, be a strong, fearless leader to all these, all these new writers that are, that are stepping on board. Well, there's the other part of show running too, of course, which is that, uh, you know, you're running the room and writers who are coming up have been mostly in the room. Each show does it differently. But then all of a sudden you're also in budget meetings and in casting and in wardrobe. Uh, and I don't know if you know that quote from Tina Fey. She said that the showrunner's job is to police creativity that when you ask wardrobe, say, for a red shirt and they bring in 10 shirts that range from <laughs> coral to fuchsia and they're like, but this one has this embellishment and this is this and this is that. And you have to kind of crush their dreams and say, actually, just what we need is a plain red shirt. Um, yep. <laughs> can you talk about parts of that that are hard for you or that you have learned to work around or... Yeah, I think the pace of television, you learn very early on that it's either a yes or a no. Like, it's like, you need to move forward. It's like, no, not the fuchsia, the red, let's go. Like, you sort of have to 
uh, make the decision and move forward. I think that's a, that that's a really important part of the the process. But also, you have these amazing professionals and these artists who are part of the team who are 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 making the show, whether it's the production designer or the costume designer, and and you always want to hear from them. But sometimes there comes a time when it's like, no, we need the red shirt. Let's get the red shirt. Let's make sure it fits well. Let's make sure it's broken down and looks aged. It's not the first time that they've worn it. <laughs> no creases. That sort of thing, and 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 uh, you sort of have to make sure that what uh, your vision is 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 uh, uh, what's being captured on the day, and it's a collaborative process, and there are lots of people involved and lots of gears. Um, and I think the most important thing that I've learned is that the yes or the no thing, and 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 there's not a lot of time for maybe, you know, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually a, a really great point, like decisiveness. For like better or for worse is the only way forward. There's not a lot yeah. of time for maybe is is great. Should be on a t-shirt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and another another fun. I don't know if um something a show like Riverdale and, a show, and even uh, Roberto's show Sabrina. They're very uh, beautiful shows and they're very curated and very layered and and it's very important that the shows are beautiful to us. So so it, it, we're we are very hands on and we are a writer driven show and there are always writers on set and 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 um. It's it's the collaborative process to see how all the departments sort of get excited and passionate and and everyone feels like they're contributing to something and 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 making something special um, is also a really satisfying thing. When 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 sort of someone on set, um, someone on the crew or or one of the writers says says this is our show and that this, they have ownership of the show, that's really important to us to us as well. And is is a really uh, satisfying part of the process to see people get excited about the work and feel ownership and feel proud. When did you know you were good? Oh God, I'm, that's a, that's a hard question. I don't like questions like that. I don't, I don't even, I, I am one of those people who, um, I, my stepdad's a lawyer. And one day he said to me, you're only as good as your last file, (laughs) which is such like a lawyerly thing to say. And I really took it to heart and I continue to take it to heart till this day. I'm sort of always looking forward and I don't, I don't look, I don't look, look back that often or I'm, I'm always looking forward. So I'm, um, I'm always challenging myself to grow and to be better. And, and, uh, I think that's where my head is, is always the what's next and how can this be really special and how can this be really, really good? Um, and thinking less about me and myself and if I'm good or not. It's like, how do I make this special? Does that make sense? It does. And the reason why I worded it that way is because I think the writer's question, the equivalent writer's question to that question is, when did you find your voice? And Mm. it actually, that question gives you room to move and squirm, which is what you've been doing. (laughs) But the... The equivalent of good for a writer is finding your voice, having confident in, confidence mm. in your voice. And you have one, obviously. I mean, that's established. You're running a show. You have run shows. But when did you feel that you had one, that you had a point of view, that it was that was worth sharing? I, I, I love the question worded that way because I can <laughs> remember exactly when that happened. And I, I really felt like it was on... Degrassi really, really early on. Um, we were talking about sort of second coming of age stories. 
Um, one of my second coming of age stories was when I, I was at C, working at CTV. I was working in the drama department and I was offered to be an executive, the executive in charge of production on, on Flashpoint at the time, which felt like a big job for me in my early 20s. And then I was also offered to be the coordinator on Degrassi that very first season. And I, I took the risk. I, I, I took, the, I took the, the job that didn't pay anything. And it ended up paying off. And I, I, that very first year, I got to um, sort of tell a story that I really, that was really important to me on Degrassi, which was uh, uh, about a closeted football player who was sneaking off to the woods to hook up with one of his previous campmates. And I remember the showrunner at the time um, was not Brendan; it was another showrunner. Um, she didn't believe in the story and, and was angry that we were telling it. And I remember she sort of snapped at me and she's like, but they're children <laughs> was what she said to me. And, and, and um, I sort of, <laughs> this is like, they're children. I'm like, oh, first of all, he's a teenager. He's fine. And he's with another teenager. Everything's okay. Um, but I remember uh, I sort of pushed through and I pitched the episode to Linda and uh, Linda was like, this is amazing. Let's do it. And I sort of felt like that was my first time where I believed in a story where we were telling sort of a, a coming of age story um, that was personal, that that felt like that a story that needed to be told. And I, I, I uh, uh, it was it was interesting to see like, oh, I have a voice. I have something to say. And, and uh, the creator of Degrassi believes that I should write this. And, and that was sort of a very smooth first script process for me. That was really fun. And, and I was like, OK, maybe I can keep doing this. And I did. Yeah. Is that a good story? Are we allowed to tell stories like this? I love oh, that 100% story. 100%. We tell those stories. And you told it very perfectly with all the, uh, uh, you, you walked a beautiful line there. Um, so, but here's something that's interesting about that. Uh, and I think, I think we could have a whole other conversation about the blessing and curse of an easy first script, but that's a, that's another time. Oh yeah. They get harder and harder. They, the first one is always like a nice, blissful, easy orgasm. And then you're like, why yeah. are they all like this? I think you told me this once, Duane, you said, the more you know, the harder it gets. And I think about that all the time. You said that to me and I could not agree more. The more you know, the harder it gets. It's, why do you think that is? I think that you, you've done something. And then when you go to do the next thing, it's like, you've accumulated more knowledge on what it takes to make something great. And I think, I think you're just always trying to push to make something better than your last thing. And I think it just gets harder and harder. I mean, I don't disagree, but I'm very proud to know I had such like Bon Mo's coming out. Um, <laughs> but speaking of that, so you uh, have done a number of shows that have been successful, but Riverdale was like a cultural juggernaut. Like Riverdale arrived fully formed and it was instantly, pardon me, and it was instantly, uh, you know, a, a part of the conversation. And as you pointed out, had a tone and had a look and all that kind of thing. Are there pressures there must be, but what are the pressures that are unique to working on something that is so big so fast? Um, I think the pressure is always to never be like, okay, well, this is a third season show. It's never sort of resting on, on the laurels. It's sort of like, okay, we're entering a new season of this. How do we make this the best season of the show yet? How do we give our amazing cast new material 
stuff to dig into that's fresh and exciting and challenging. Um, same goes with the crew and every department. It's sort of like, what are the new stories to tell and how do we make this the best season possible is, 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 is the, is the pressure I think. And it's sort of the, the challenge that we're always holding ourselves to, um, to make sure that we're, we're sort of not resting and sort of always pushing forward and driving forward and, and trying to make something special. And to that end, can you talk a little bit about like maybe room mechanics in terms of, uh, you know, a thing that you, you do experience in the writer's room, but that I think doesn't get talked about as much is when uh, two characters who have no business being together have crazy chemistry or the two leads that you cast opposite each other kind of fizzle. You know, whether you want to be general or specific, uh, like you can tell us if your first reaction is, oh, fuck. But, uh, but yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? No, I, I, I love what you're saying. I think it's so important to watch for chemistry and where the sparks are on screen. And I think we, we have um, sort of put people together and it's really worked and we've, uh, uh, we've seen what, what that does. And, and there is undeniable chemistry amongst lots, many of our cast members. And we do watch that. And that is very important. You almost can't be super rigid in television. You have to be, you have to be willing to sort of learn and evolve. And it's like, this isn't working. How do we pivot from this? Okay. The audience really isn't responding to this storyline. How do we end it in a surprising, satisfying, deep way and, and start something new, I think is something that we're always um, looking out for. Was there ever um, a character who was not intended to be a thing and either the actor arrived and really killed it and you made them a thing or, well, let's focus yeah. on the positive. Well, no, yeah. no, yeah, let's focus on the positive. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. We, it's, we are, we shoot in Vancouver and there are so many uh, amazing um local Vancouver actors that we've cast on Riverdale that were just brought in sort of as episodic actors, but really popped and shined and, 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 and had great chemistry with a lot of our characters. Someone like uh, 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 Fangs and Sweepy are amazing. Uh, Vanessa Morgan, who plays Tony Topaz, who is a, a, another Canadian actor. She came in to be um, someone who goes to Southside High and had scenes with Jughead and she was a serpent. And then um, we ended up pairing her with, um, Madeleine Petch, who plays Cheryl Blossom, and the chemistry there was undeniable, and they've sort of broken out as one of the favorite couples on the show, and, and Vanessa's sort of been, uh, uh, is one of our, our, our series uh, regulars now, so so yes, that, that definitely does happen, it is a thing. Also, people who we sort of brought on for one scene, there's a scene where, where Veronica's sort of courting a bunch of uh, potential suitors, as like business suitors, and then one of the young actors who played the character of Elio is somebody who who was great, and we, he's keeps on coming back because he's just, he's just good. So we're always watching out for, for people who are good that sort of populate the world. And, and, and yeah, I think that's, that's, uh, that there have definitely been success stories. Uh, quick follow-up since you mentioned shooting in Vancouver and since you mentioned Vanessa Morgan is Canadian, but of course you are in a writer's room in LA and you have been in LA for many years. Is there anything that you have pitched that people look at you strange and you realize it's a Canadianism or uh, oh all the time tell 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 oh my god 
I get teased a lot for being the Canadian in the room, but that's okay. I can roll with that. Um, I'm trying to think of something specific where people are like, huh? It happens kind of like regularly. Like I'll give you an example that I heard recently. I was listening yeah. to uh, oh, I was listening to Seth Rogen, who's Canadian, on the Dax Shepherd podcast, and Seth was telling some story about oh, at lunch in high school we would go wherever, and Dax Shepherd said right, and you sneak off campus, and Seth said no, you just go, and that was a sort of <laughs> ten minute digression because I guess in a lot of schools in the U.S. it's you can't leave, you would be you know you'd be in trouble with the truancy officer or whatever it is, like just cultural differences that you don't realize are different until you talk about them. Yeah. Oh, there are so many. I also feel like it's Canadian for me. And then I'm also from Quebec. So it's like this double, like I'm like, so it's like Sejep is like a word that people have never heard. In fairness, um, I also laugh at your Sejep stories. Yeah. Like Sejep is weird. Um, um, I'm trying to think of other things, but like my first week in the room, I was I, of like the Supergirl room. I was like, um, I, I think I was like talking. Uh, some people were talking about the WGA, and I was like, "But the WGC would protect you." And everyone sort of looked at me, being like, "You're not in Canada anymore." So I sort of <laughs> like, "You need to evolve." Um, yeah, there are, there are a number of things. I can't think of any specific ones right now. Um, but uh, one of the I remember my in, on Supergirl. Um, I was like, I guess like sort of like proudly still writing with my U's. And I remember I overheard my, the showrunner, Ali Adler, tell the, the script coordinator being like, and watch out for Michael's Canadian spelling. And I was like, ooh. <laughs> what? Yikes. <laughs> yeah, but why would that be a thing? Well, it just is like, you're asking me like, why is that a problem? Yeah. Because when you're down to the wire, and everything has to be checked. There are a million things the coordinator has to do. It's just one more thing on the list to do a search and replace for every Canadian word. And I would imagine if that... But how would that be an obstacle? Like, it's you know, just, are, it's, are, are, is there a person out there who would be like, I can't read this line because there's this weird phantom you that I've never seen before. <laughs> okay, so now I'll tell you, like, yes, agents will tell you, yes, that's an obstacle. Uh, that you have to change all your spelling, right? Like, I don't want to speak for you, but that's something you've been told too, right? Take the Canadianisms out of your script. I don't even script. know. That was the first time I had heard it, and I was, like, chilled to the bone. So I've been, like, very, um, very uh, diligent about my Canadian spelling ever since. And my iPhone still tells me that when I spell something American, they're, like, they tells me that it's wrong. So I feel like my iPhone's keeping me in check, like it's keeping me Jenny from the block. One other thing about room culture that I just want to mention, I don't know if this feels like a weird sidebar, but um, something that I feel like is important is that our rooms are sort of um, title blind. Like we're sort of title blind in the room and hierarchy is not an important thing in the room. And just mm -hmm. because someone is, for instance, uh, 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 a higher level writer, it doesn't mean that their pitch has more value or that we necessarily want to hear from them more. It's sort of like we're all writers in the room and we're all working together to make this episode special and great. And every good pitch is a good pitch. It, it doesn't matter who it comes from in the room, if that makes sense. So that that's another thing that some rooms are a little more uh, hierarchical, hierarchical. Yeah. Is that the word? It is. And I'm um, glad that you mentioned it because uh, I don't actually think that's something we've talked about. We do often talk about the writer's room as though it's a 
a collective, but uh, in both Canada and the U.S., but I think more overtly in the U.S., uh, there are kind of stair steps. Each year that you write has a new title. And so in theory, a room is staffed with, this is not exact, but in theory, a room is staffed with one person from each stair step or each level. And so that's what you're talking about, that there are some rooms where the person in the number two position, their pitch has more weight than the person in the number six position. Yeah. Yeah. That's not the case on, 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 on Riverdale. And I think all the same thing will be for Katie is that we're all, we all think of ourselves as writers and we're sort of all a team. And, 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 and that's sort of how the room functions is that uh, a pitch is valid from anybody who's, who's in the room, including our amazing writer's assistants who are in there taking notes. It's like, if you've got something to say, we want it, we need it. It's like sort of jump in, you know? But my follow-up to that would be, um, you know, you come up with these stories, this is the story you want to tell, but ultimately you have to take it to the network, right? So is it the showrunner who has to fight for the story, who has to advocate for it, if there are any concerns? Great question, yeah. So every um, step of the process, uh, the studio and network are heavily involved So um, and, and are great partners. And, and so when we deliver uh, the first document, which is, the story area, um, we do a notes call. And then when we deliver the script, we also do a notes call and the showrunner uh, on, for Riverdale in, in Riverdale's case, Roberto was on every single call and it's uh, we sort of have a dialogue and we talk about um, um, notes and we sort of discuss stuff and, and we make sure that stuff is as good as it can be. And, and a lot of people sort of groan at the notion of notes, but we really do look at at it as an opportunity to it's another chance to make this better it's another chance to deepen something it's another chance for us to take a look at it and we're always sort of kicking the tires and making sure that that things are as good as they can be right up until the point where we're shooting them is there one more good line is there is there one more fun thing we can put in here is there is there is there one more image that we can try to work in um and, and any opportunity to do that, including the steps of, of the notes process are, are, are important to that. I think that's a, I think that's a, the ideal situation. And obviously you have that and um, it's what everybody strives for in whatever industry they work in. I mean, we obviously have been focusing only on screenwriting here for this episode, but I think you can apply that, the notes thing um, to any industry having to get approval or buy-in or collaboration from all levels of the organization to be as general as possible. That said, even I, and I think even the public, have heard about stories where the network has pushed back, that they haven't been happy. I mean, I think one of the most recent well-known examples of this has been an episode on Blackish that was completely shelved, which was an episode about uh, Colin Kaepernick and uh, the effect it had in Kenya Barris wanting it this way and the network basically saying, no, we can't do that. Um, have you ever come up against something like that before? Um, there were instances, I would say, where we had dialogues with the studio or network um, where they pushed back on storylines and, and we, we also fought for storylines. Um, and I think the decisions that were always made in our case specifically were always for the better of the show. Um, and it's funny, it's sometimes we find ourselves um, holding our own work to the fire in a way as much as 
the studio network does. So sometimes the studio network will sign off on something and then we're the ones who are asking ourselves, should we, is this really the right story we should be telling? And it's like, okay, let's take this back to the room. Maybe this isn't the right story. How do we make this deeper or better? Or, um, but I don't, um, I can't think of a specific instance where there was like a pushback. I often think about Degrassi and I think about uh, that Manny episode. Um, There was an abortion episode before my time that T Nick um, or uh, uh, the N at the time didn't air um, right away. Do you remember that Duenna? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They, they had been on board with all of the, elements of the show up to then, including the episode where, of course, that character, who I think was 14 at the time, gets pregnant. Uh, But they couldn't come to, they couldn't in good faith air that episode uh, in their minds where she had an abortion at that time, which I think was 2003. Yeah. Yeah, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, or 2004. Uh, And eventually they did, and it's just in indicative of the culture changes, right? Things that are unacceptable become more acceptable. Um, I guess, though, uh, in that vein, and this is something that you want to talk a lot about, uh, you talk about audience response and there's network response. And uh, there, you know, one of the dirtiest words in TV fandom is like fan service, right? Like being, doing a show that is for the fans too much, but then it's also, mm-hmm. if you do a show that's not enough for the fans, then you, you do no longer have a show. Funny that. So, uh, talk about walking that line a little bit. Yeah. It's such a, um, we, we live in a different time where, where there's such an awareness of all that. Um, I have this belief that if we ever were to do any kind of fan service, I think the fans would be hyper aware of it and would turn on the show and be like, this is fan service. Like, I think that it would sort of uh, uh, crack the show a little bit in a, in a bad way. I think, I think what's important is always to look at the characters and tell story through character. And I think that's the way to sort of avoid any of that is just to be truthful to the character. Um, and sometimes when you sort of get caught up in that noise and, and you're sort of thinking too big picture too, like, well, how are the fans going to react? Um, sometimes it's really good to sort of like quiet um, the, all that, all that noise and sort of ask the question, okay, like what would Betty do next? What would Archie, a human being do next in this situation? And, and, and sort of trying not to think about a lot of the external feedback and sort of thinking about, this amazing three-dimensional character that's been developed over three seasons now. Um, and it's really being uh, truthful to them and honoring, honoring the characters first and foremost is how I personally navigate that. And I think how we navigate that as a room. Now you're in a unique position because you're working from source material as inspiration, much like um, Avengers where you have already a built in, I mean, Perhaps Archie's a little bit different because, you know, they're the people who read Archie comics are not like <laughs> from the 50s or whatever or the 60s. But, you know, with the Avengers, there's a huge comic book fan base that is looking and mining to the source material for clues, for background, for understanding of the character. You're in a similar kind of environment. Um, so does that 
have any kind of impact on how you're writing to the show? Um, the IP for Archie Comics is amazing, and the characters are amazing, and and they've they're such an inspiration. I think they've been an inspiration for the show since the very beginning. Um, um, it's interesting. The storylines in Archie comics aren't necessarily uh, driving our plot because we're sort of Riverdale, sort of a take on the Archie characters. It's sort of a subversion of the yeah. Archie characters, and we're inspired by all of the characters and the DNA of the, the the comic book characters and how do we subvert them and three dimensionalize them, and and we're also inspired by relationships. Um, um, Early on in season one, uh, uh, there were certain couplings that were couplings from the comic books that we brought together, um, and 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 obviously the the the, the Archie Betty Veronica uh, triangle is something that we're always sort of circling and, and exploring um, um, because that's so true to the comic books, but always looking for a way to do it on Riverdale that's true to these characters in this show. Um, we very often look back to the comics as for inspiration. Um, in terms of it driving story, I don't, I don't know if it does because of the nature of, of Archie comics, which are shorter, sort of funnier anecdotal storylines. Mm-hmm. And we should be clear that Katie Keene is from that universe as well. Yes, much yes, like Sabrina Katie was in that universe. Yeah, Katie Keene is a, 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 um, a really cool comic book. She is a model, and she's an actress in the comic books, and she's very glamorous. And we've sort of reimagined her as a young uh, fashion designer who uh, makes clothes. She makes clothes for herself. She makes clothes for her friends. And um, yeah, no, the Katie Keene comic books are so beautiful um, from the 50s. She was sort of America's queen of pinups and fashions. And um, if you sort of get your hands on some of the older issues, a lot of them have um, paper dolls. Were you guys obsessed with paper dolls growing up? I don't. Show? I think I love the idea of paper dolls, like no, books, like, but I never knew where to get them because I was obsessed with yeah. the show Paper Dolls. I don't we know were obsessed. Like, I don't know that show either. Yeah, there was like a TV show called Paper Dolls, and it didn't last very long. Do you but mean was, Living Dolls? No, Paper Dolls. I will look it up <laughs> we, while you could. I was obsessed with Paper Dolls. I my we always had like the the cutouts. It would basically be like someone in their underwear, and then you like you fold like a dress onto them. Um, that was really big in the Katie Keene comics. You can cut out the clothes. Another cool thing about the Katie comics is that young readers or any readers, can, they could mail in their designs and then the artists would um, put those designs on Katie in the comics and sort of give shout outs to the fans oh, who like mailed on. in their designs, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, let me just educate you two young people. Paper Dolls. <laughs> was an American television series that debuted in 1984. It didn't last long, but please let me read you the cast list. Morgan Fairchild, the end. (laughs) Morgan Fairchild, Nicolette Sheridan. Yes, that's why I was obsessed with it. And it was about New York's fashion industry. The show centered on top modeling agency owner Racine, played by Morgan Fairchild. Anyway, yes. Young people. This sounds amazing. FYI. This sounds amazing. Okay. Get on it, Netflix. I I just want to say while we're talking in this area of where story comes from, and I know that, you know, we could talk for hours, but you probably have other things in your life. But uh, 
when we're talking about fans and what they like or source material or whatnot, uh, one of the things you talk about things that come from earlier showrunners or shows, uh, one of the things that I've said that you've really liked uh, about, uh, you know, is a kind of a governing principle. And I want to know your reaction to it. Uh, We talk about giving people and fans or audiences what they need and not what they want. And that to me is a, is a Brendan, Brendan Yorkism as well. Uh, and is that ever tough or always easy? It's easy when it, when you're just trying to can like you're trying to focus on the character. And, and, and I think that people watch the show because it's dramatic and people watch the show because there's conflict. I think if in the ideal world where nothing happened to any of these characters and they, and everything was fine in their lives and all the relationships were sort of um, unbreakable. I think, I think the drama would uh, uh, escape from the show, like, like a punctured balloon and we'd be in trouble. So I think, um, I think part of just being human is, is, is having all those cracks and that messiness and ups and downs. And I feel like, I feel like it's, it's just trying to provide deep stories for these characters and, and that, is maybe what the audience needs, maybe what they don't need, but but I think keeping keeping the drama is so important. Um, and I think fan service, like I said, sort of deflates some of that. So on the subject of characters, a difficult topic, but you, we lost a character this year. So in staying with the work, on the work side, how do you handle that? And... How do you move ahead? Yeah, um, it's such a tremendous loss um, to everyone, to to and uh, to the show. And I think um, we'll all really miss Luke. And I think the show um, will miss Luke. Um, and uh, uh, the only way to sort of move forward in something like this is to is to honor Luke as much as we can, and to um, um, move forward with, with Luke in mind and, 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 uh, to, um, uh, uh, it's, it's such a hard, um, it's, it's, it's something that's very hard to move forward from. And, and, and it's also just thinking of Archie as a character as, as crazy as some of, uh, uh, our storytelling gets and as Gonzo as it gets and as Baroque as it gets, the safe space on Riverdale was when you were in that kitchen with, with Archie and, and Fred, like those were the scenes where sort of, sort of grounded things and, and slowed stuff down in, in a good way. Um, uh, so we'll miss that tremendously. Um, uh, and then we'll, we'll definitely feel, feel that loss. And um, in terms of how we move forward, like I said, it's all about honoring Luke and honoring the character of Fred and, um, in terms of how Archie's going to move on, we have, it's funny, um, before any of this happened, we were planning to bring Molly Ringwald back, who plays Archie's mom, Mary Andrews, for a storyline. And then um, uh, she's so great and she stuck around and she sort of uh, stepped in as, as uh, in, a, in a sort of maternal role for Archie, which was, which was great. And hopefully there will be uh, more of that moving forward. It's one of those heartbreaking, but also kind of amazing reasons why we do this type of a job, which is to say, this is the kind of thing you can't predict in life. And then you sort of, you talked about Archie as a living, breathing human being. 
and going, this is a scenario that we didn't predict for the character uh, fictionally and going, okay, well now we are reeling, but also that character is reeling and figuring out how you, how he moves from there is, is what makes a show kind of relevant in the moment, right? There's a reason it's not a book with a finite ending. Yeah. That's, that's, that's sort of the, the wonder of television. That's what makes television so special is that you get to continue to tell these stories with these characters and, 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 uh, through through all kinds of stuff and and yeah how do you how do you move on and how do you move forward is um is something that uh we'll be talking a lot about in in our room and 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 beyond you know i think too it's one of the rare occasions where want and need converge like i'm not sure that the there's going to be a pull between what the character needs versus necessarily what the fans want i think all of that is just the same um, which mm. is like still a creative challenge and yet you don't have to worry for lack of a better, like, of course there are many bigger things to worry about, but you don't have to worry about the pull there. Well, I think that comes mm. back to your point, Michael, about just sort of human instincts and people going like, yeah, what does a living, breathing character need in this moment? And that's where, I think that's where TV does its best work and where characters become the kind of totems that that people relate to, even though everybody watching TV ever knows it's fictional, when they see a story that really touches them, it's because it was written by real people having real experiences mm-hmm. and acted by real people who have had those real experiences. So those can be not, you know, they can be transcendent moments, even though they often come out of, out of pain. Well, speaking of Absolutely. that, I think that, you know, the, the writer's life more than maybe any other profession needs life. Like you need to have life in order to be able to inform story and characters and bring that sense of reality into the room. So let's talk about your life. (laughs) Oh my God. Um. (laughs) What has success done to your life? You know, um, it's wonderful. Um, I work a lot, but work is, is great. Um, and then I have, uh, an amazing partner, Matt, um, and we spend a lot of time together. He's my family here in Faye. Um, I see friends as often as I can. Um, we try to get to the beach. There's a dog beach called Rosie's beach where Faye could be off leash. And she, she, she's not a runner, but when she's on Rosie's beach, like she runs and it's pretty amazing. That's like a moment, a moment of grace. You know, when Oprah talks about like, wow moments or like moments of like wonder when you you see god like that's like seeing god is like fey running Spoken like a true dog lover like <laughs> <laughs> and do- people who don't have dogs don't understand this like they you know i i feel like because i don't have children i have dogs it's yeah it is that moment of divinity in your life when your dog does something that just dogs are supposed to do run on the beach well dogs and dogs stay Pure in a way that children are wonderful people, but they become children become kids and then kids become teenagers and dogs stay in that pure state mm-hmm. all of the time. I would say, yeah. um, Michael, that over the years, you know, obviously uh, you love Matt and that's very clear, but I feel like you burst into bloom of love when Faye came into your life. Like you just became a, <laughs> yeah. a, 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 
of a heart beating externally all the time when she arrived. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. She, um, when I first got here, when I first landed in LA, we, as we all know, I think transitions are always hard and it's really vulnerable when you start a new job and a new world and no one knows you and you have to prove yourself and all of that stuff. And like, it's, it's, and I was so in my head about all of it that when Faye came into our lives, it was like, oh, there was something um, external, like this, 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 this womanly dog that needs to be walked and fed and taken care of. And it was like, oh, it's nice that something is not about to sort of externally have to take care of something. It was some, some it really, really helped a lot. Um, and I think uh, it's so important to continue to cultivate things on the outside of work that require time and, and, and attention, because as you say, we have to live full lives in order to, in order to write full lives and full characters. And, and yeah, that's, that's something that I have to continue to try to prioritize um, moving forward. And I, I, I love going to the movies here. I love being in LA. I love, um, I love going to the record store and looking at, at old records. I just went last week and like, I really um, went crazy for like, I went into like the Wainwright, like I, I, Kate and Anne McGarrigal. I got like every album they had. I got all of like the Luden Wainwright albums and like tons of prints and um a tommy record just that's fun for me <laughs> and you put them on like are you gonna have a turntable in the office or the, do you put them on at home or that's at home that's at home i mean i would love a turntable at the office but step by step you know can't or do it, can't to your do point keep that for for home life to have something else right yeah so i think what I wanted to end on with you is as you become more successful, how will you navigate all the great things that will continue to come at you? Being that you're only one person, you only have a a finite amount of time. In that time, you also want to have a life outside of the work so that you can do good work. Um, I think that's part of show your work too, is um, as you become successful, what are the things you say no to? And when do you say yes? Hmm. That's such a good question. I was sort of having this conversation with a friend yesterday. And I think I feel like I've reached a point in my life where I've just started to learn and use the word no. And it's been, um, it's, it's pretty powerful. And like, I, I hear Oprah talk about it a lot and she <laughs> talks about the word no and it's, and then how it's, it's powerful. And then, and I think that, I always, and I think we all have to look within and be like, what stories do we want to tell? What do we want to say? Um, and how do we balance that to make sure that we have full lives as well is, 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 is important because you can take on a lot. Um, and, and we work in a, in a world where people want you to take on a lot. Um, and I'm the type of person who wants to take on a lot, but I think, uh, I want to make sure that what I take on is stuff that um, speaks to me and stuff that I uh, that is important to me. That's amazing. Um, and it's a masterclass to sit here and listen to you and listen to you talk about like quiet the noise and focus about what you want to say and do is uh, I'm taking that home with me. Uh, and so it's I think everybody's going to love that as well. I'm taking home. There's no time for maybe. 
Yeah, for sure. It's either a yes or a no mm-hmm. is, I think, maybe the title of the episode. Yeah. yeah. It's real good. I love it. I'm heartbroken because I just realized that before our episode began, you talked about the Degrassi movie, and uh, we didn't ask Michael about a troll. Uh, there's a very <laughs> active troll who is upset about some of the things that happened in that film. Uh, so we'll have to follow up with that uh, the next time we talk to him. But everybody, remember, sometimes there's just no time for maybe. It's either a yes or a mm-hmm. no. Mm-hmm. And it's se- like it seems so simple. Um, and then when someone says it, you're like, fuck, yeah, why, why am I not living my life according to there's no time for maybe? I mean, that's the joy of doing something like that professionally, where there are a lot of decisions to be made. In your own life, you can kind of waffle and prevaricate, but in that moment, it's either a yes or a no. I also took home uh, some new information that I hadn't really thought about. Yeah, have your wardrobe people wash the clothes before people wear them so they don't still have like the size sticker on it, you know, is always a good thought. So fresh off the season finale last week of Riverdale um, and the season three conclusion and leading into Katie Keene, which you all will be watching, think about this podcast and what Michael shared with us. Thanks so much. And until next time, send us your thoughts, your emails, your tweets. You know we love them all, even when we're fighting, especially when we're fighting. And check us out wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe to us, leave comments, give us reviews, and always show your work. Bye. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.